0: Hello, Secret Movie Clubbers. Welcome to Secret Movie Club podcast, uh, Secret Movie Club summer podcast number three. Uh, It's wonderful to have you. Uh, As we're doing all August with these podcasts, we're going to do something new, and then we're going to repost one of our early uh, pods because it's now been about three years. And uh, in case you came to the podcast later, we thought uh, as part of our summer break and we're... I'm working really, really hard to get us all ready for the fall season, we might just repost some pods that you might not have heard. So today, we are going to repost Secret Movie Club Radio Hour episode number four. We posted Saturday, October 31st, 2020. Uh, And that first year we did the pod during COVID in 2020, we also did radio hours uh, because everyone was at home and we wanted to do something creative, and we got this uh, all this amazing vocal talent. This is a full-on old-school radio hour that we did, uh, fiction of little horror shorts. So uh, I hope you enjoy it. Uh, and uh, what we're gonna talk about that's new today is uh, I wanted to talk about filmmaker William Friedkin. And uh, it was interesting. I I didn't know if I was gonna do that. I we had some other pod subjects. And it felt right. So I'll get into that in a moment. This week, uh, we start our secret series at The Secret Movie Club. If you take a look at our social media or you've joined our newsletter, you know what we're doing. But uh, we're doing our first ever secret series. So this is our secret series, 2023. And we are showing what I consider, and we've talked about off and on, I consider in total Uh, What we're showing, one of the greatest works of cinematic art of the last 50 years. It's 45 hours uh, in total, and it spans mediums, uh, TV and cinema. Uh, Night one is Saturday, August 12th at 7.30. We're showing the very famous pilot, then uh, the first and the second episode. Each episode runs 45 minutes, and uh, I'm also showing the alternate ending episode of the European pilot. So hopefully for people in the know, you know what I'm talking about. But then next week, Wednesday is night two. We are showing uh, the rest of the first season. Then um, Thursday, August 17th is night three. We are beginning the second season and there you go. And we have uh, many other events that aren't associated with the Secret Series coming up, including please uh, stay tuned next week Starting Monday, August 14th, we're going to announce some of our final events in September that we've been holding on to, our bigger events. Uh, We confirmed the 35 millimeter prints for a lot of them. One of them has an original score, a new score. Uh, So next week we will announce those events. We'd love to have you. As always, you can write us at secret movie club, uh, community at secretmovieclub.com. You can find out everything we're doing at secretmovieclub.com. You can get tickets at Eventbrite, secretmovieclub.com. As always, if you like the pod, if you like what we do, we would love reviews, we'd love likes. It does really help us. Okay, moving on. Today, I had a number of possible pod. Topics that I wanted to talk about for the new part of uh, this podcast, and at the f- sort of eleventh hour in the final moment, I decided no, I am going to talk about Re- William Friedkin. Uh, Mister Friedkin, one of the the most famous of the '70s filmmakers, just passed at 87, and uh, it it put me in mind of a number of things. One is, I think we need to brace ourselves now that these filmmakers that a lot of us have grown up with, come up with, were idolized, were talked about, uh, we're now seeing their final works. Um, And uh, I don't want to get morose uh, or dumb about it. Uh, And someone like William Friedkin has a minimum of three to four stone-cold classics to his name. French Connection, The Exorcist sorcerer it has for all intents and purposes become a classic cruising is uh we, we did a defend this movie you can hear about it but many people are ardent defenders of that consider that one of his best and to live and die in la that's five movies i just named um and on top of that, he's a really interesting figure because he, he continued making movies to the end of his life. He made movies in the 80s. He made movies in the 90s. He made movies in the yachts, He made uh, movies in the last 13 years. When it came time to record this, I thought to myself, I, I actually got to meet William Friedkin. I um, got to interview him for two hours uh, when I was a USC undergraduate. And I'll tell that story in a moment. And he was the nicest man to me. Um, he, he was one of, uh, the nicest interviews that we did. I'll get into that. He was a total mensch and, uh, he was hilarious. He was, he was great to listen to. Uh, he called me Chris the whole night and he would rub my shoulder when he would make, when he was making certain points, we were sitting in two chairs next to each other. And he'd like put his hand on my shoulder and be like, Chris, that's a good question. And he'd rub my shoulder and I'd be like, why is he? calling me Chris and why is he rubbing my shoulder but he, he would I got it it was like you know like a moment of connection uh, and he only did it like two or three times and and it was a mensch he was a mensch the whole night um it, so I, I thought you know in honor of mr. Friedkin uh, and that night uh, and and just because of everything that he represents uh, I wanted to to talk about him right now it, it, there are many filmmakers that if they didn't make another movie, there is one or two of the movies that they made that changed the game forever. I love pop culture. Uh, and, and so I actually, when I say that, I mean that as, as a kind of highest praise, something that so seeps into our uh, collective and public un- consciousness that there are references to it all the time that we don't even know about. It almost becomes like the Bible or Shakespeare. And William Friedkin is one of those directors. He directed The Exorcist. Interestingly, for whatever it's worth, my favorite Friedkin is French Connection. Um, I I am obsessed with French Connection. Uh, That's the one that I love. Uh, Exorcist, I really, really admire. And uh, I'm going to talk about it just a a bit. And then after that, I'm probably the, the other one that I'm a huge fan of is definitely To Live and Die in L.A., Uh, I'm an L.A. native. I love that movie. It's got that dope car chase where they're going on the wrong way on the 101. And it's got Willem Dafoe. uh, And Friedkin does all his Friedkin weird stuff in that. But I think it works. Like I remember he shoots from behind Dafoe and it's a woman. And then uh, he shoots in front of Dafoe and it's Dafoe. And you're like, why'd he do that? Uh, (laughs) But but it it works. It's great. Um, But The Exorcist, you know, you you could argue that French Connection ushered in uh, a new era of a kind of gritty, anti-heroic police procedural, but it really was part of a number of uh, like-minded movies at the time, Uh, Steve McQueen and Bullet. In fact, Friedkin has said that the car chase in French Connection, which is one of the all-time great car chases, was him trying to outdo uh, the Bullet uh, car chase. So you've got, you know, you've got Sam Peckinpah uh, around the same time doing movies like Wild Bunch and The Getaway. You've got um, uh, uh, Sidney Lamette doing movies like Serpico, uh, which I think was a year or two after French Connection. But uh, there really was a anti-heroic police cops and robbers genre. And I feel that there were a number of contributors to it. The Exorcist, on the other hand, even though it was based on a novel by William uh, Peter Vlatti, uh but Friedkin directed it. And I think really what's crazy is that he directed this New York police uh, g- crime thriller, and then he goes to this horror movie. And uh, I'm sure everyone's seen The Exorcist, so I don't need to recapitulate it. But essentially, it deals with uh, a young girl uh, played by Linda Blair who uh, seems to get possessed by the devil. And her mom, Ellen Burstyn, ha- does not know what to do. Uh, and all the doctors, everything, nothing makes sense. All these this phenomena happens that no one can uh, make sense of. And ultimately, uh, Jason Miller and Max von Sydow, who are priests, come to perform an exorcism. And uh, the movie, when it came out, if you ever get a chance, you should YouTube the contemporaneous <laughs> Video that people shot when that movie came out, people were passing out in the theater. People were throwing up in the aisles. People were screaming and running out of the theater. There had never been a horror movie that had gone for the jugular like uh, The Exorcist did. And, uh, you know, there's so many things now that we take for granted, but uh, just hearing these foul things come out of a little girl's mouth, uh, seeing her head turn around 360 degrees, seeing her throw up projectile vomit onto somebody. Uh, the There were these flash cuts of, of demonic faces. Uh, things happened to characters you did not see coming. I mean, it really is uh, a iconic and textbook way on how you want to make a horror movie that uh, really, truly scares the pants out of, off of people. There were definitely horror movies before then that were amazing. Uh, and I love tons of horror movies that come before The Exorcist. And, and they don't even need to be compared to The Exorcist. They're, they're some of the greatest horror movies ever made. I mean, Night of the Living Dead was made like four years before The Exorcist. There's, there's never really been anything like it before or since. And so if William Friedkin never did anything else... He did The Exorcist, and he fought those fights. And uh, he, he was the one who made those decisions to, to get that graphic. Uh, you know, interestingly, after The Exorcist, uh, there are a few filmmakers from that era, and I think that Friedkin is one of the interesting ones, along with Peter Bogdanovich, who their greatest movies were the ones they made very early on. Uh, Peter Bogdanovich did Targets, Last Picture Show, What's Up Doc and uh, Paper Moon all at the beginning of his career. And almost uniformly, um, at Last Picture Show, uh, Paper Moon, even Targets, those are usually considered his best movies ever. And Friedkin at the beginning of his career, although he had directed a few movies prior to French Connection. Uh, I know he did The Night They Raided Minsky's and The Boys in the Band and I think a few other things. Um, but uh, e- 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 French Connection and Exorcist – Really, whenever you're going to do a ranking of Friedkin's best movies, certainly some people might want to, uh, you know, go a different route. And they, I've I've seen some people put Cruising as number one. Uh, I would not, but but some people have. Um, but uniformly, uh, Exorcist and French Connection are going to be trading the one in the two spot. Uh, nevertheless, Friedkin would go on. Uh, after even after the movies that we just talked about, like *Sorcerer*, *Cruising*, *To Live and Die in L.A.*, he you know *To Live and Die in L.A.* was I think done in 1985, 1986, uh, and uh, Friedkin will go on to direct movies for thirty more years. Um, he really became a kind of journeyman director uh, for quite a long time. Uh, he he directed some movies that have gained cult popularity. After that, like *The Gate*. I think it's called. I've never seen it, actually, but another horror movie about a gate to hell. Um, He did a Joe Esterhaus script called Jade. Uh, Not that there are too many Defenders of Jade, but uh, that was one of his bigger movies in the 90s, uh, coming after Basic Instinct. And uh, he did uh, The Hunted, with uh, Tommy Lee Jones and Benicio Del Toro in the early 2000s. And then uh, towards the end of his career, he made uh, two movies that actually gave him a a bit of a late career resurgence. He made a movie called Bug with Ashley Judd. And then with the same writer, I believe, he made a movie called Killer Joe with Matthew McConaughey. And both those movies, and Friedkin directed both those, and both those movies uh, actually got some critical attention that, the last 20 or 25 years of Friedkin's directorial career between To Live and Die in L.A. and Bug uh, did not really get. Uh, Nevertheless, Friedkin, uh, we're here in Los Angeles, he was a rock on tour. When I was 19 in 1998, I believe, I think that's right, 1997, 1998, uh, I started with a friend at USC Film School, Alex Garcia, a club called Screenings. And what we would do, and it's, that was really the, the proto-er-secret movie club. And what i do is I'd show movies uh, either at the big theater, the Norris Theater, or the small theater, 108. Uh, i show them all on film. And I'd try to get great filmmakers to come and talk about them. And uh, we were really lucky. And I really think it was because it was USC. Uh, it, I'd love to tell you it was my my silky powers of persuasion. But I think it was that I would call and and say, hey, I'm from USC. We want you to come speak about a movie. And the filmmakers would would say yes. And and um Friedkin was one of those filmmakers. And I asked him to come speak about The Exorcist and uh, he said yes. And he drove himself. I know we had a drive on for him, but he he like drove himself. He came into the lobby. I shook his hand. He was a totally nice guy. I think he he didn't really know exactly what it was going to be, but he didn't give me any attitude. He walked into 108, which was the smaller theater. It was packed. Uh, I know we had maybe 50, a hundred people there and, uh, he looked, he saw the audience he didn't give any attitude. It's not like he walked around and be like, F this, or I thought there's going to be a bigger crowd. He was a total professional. He pulled up a chair in the front. I sat down, a nerdy 19-year-old kid, scrawny kid in my like bar mitzvah suit. I remember I always, like I still do to this day, I was in a suit. And I just started to ask him questions. And then the audience asked him questions, and he told so many amazing stories, stories that I'm sure you guys have heard before. I remember he told this amazing story about how he got actor Mercedes McCambridge to do the voice of Satan in uh, Exorcist, and basically she asked to be tied to a chair, to smoke a bunch of cigarettes, to get drunk, and then to just let her rip. And Friedkin was like, yeah,
1: baby, let's do it.
0: And (laughs) he was like telling this story, and we were all laughing because we were like, wow, I don't. I don't know if you could do that I'm sure you could uh but i mean the proof is in the pudding proof is in the pudding that devil voice and what mercedes McCambridge says is horrible and uh and shocking and uh amazing i I also remember um friedkin during that uh that q and a just uh he was just in good spirits i i remember there was there was not a touch of moroseness about him he just loved telling stories he loved holding court. And, uh, and, and and we were honored. Uh, and and so I, I just want to say uh, thank you, William Friedkin. And uh, with Friedkin, I actually think it's interesting. I rewatched um, Cruising. And Eat To Live and Die in L.A. is an 80s movie. And they all do feel like Friedkin movies. I mean, there is a Friedkin feel. Uh, a kind of uh, button pushing, boundary pushing. Um, I don't care. I'm going to do this. Uh, I'm going to F with your head a little bit, kind of Friedkin filmmaking that is identifiable uh, across the the first 20 years at least. Um, But it's interesting, too, that Friedkin's greatest movies were uh, early on. Um, And so ultimately, but he's also a survivor. He's also a lifer. Uh, you know, another interesting aspect of William Friedkin was um, there, there's there been a long period—I don't know if it's going to end now with his passing—but um, there was a long period where you could not show a 35-millimeter print of French Connection uh, or you could not show a 35-millimeter print of Exorcist, although we did back in the day at USC. So I think this was before—it was in the 90s, so it was before DCP uh, really took off. But um, Friedkin, once he had color-timed his movies— uh, he really insisted that you show them on DCP. And uh, there were notorious stories that if a rap theater around town tried to show something on 35 millimeter, that William Friedkin would show up and shut the screening down. And he would say, you either show the DCP or you shut the screening down. And I think his rationale, which is totally understandable, I know, I've heard Ridley Scott is the same about Blade Runner, was that uh, the DCP is going to look the same. Uh, no matter what theater it plays. And it's going to be clean. It's not going to be chewed up. There are not going to be scenes missing. The film isn't going to break. The film isn't going to have faded. Uh, There's not going to be just beat up, worn up, emulsion and bass scratches. And so uh, Friedkin really just—he went all in on digital, Uh, like Coppola, interestingly. Uh, Although Coppola is different on why Coppola went all in on digital, but nevertheless— Friedkin, uh, Coppola, they were of, a, I, I think, a mindset of, hey, this is the technology now. I see the benefits of it. Uh, my movie can be seen by people all around the world, and it'll be exactly as I color timed it. And uh, so Friedkin, interestingly, was a huge proponent of digital and was happy to leave uh, film behind, uh, at least as a finishing medium and an exhibition medium. And I disagree with him on that. Um, I hope I'm honoring him by maybe blasphemously showing French connection on 35, if I can get my hands on it. But um, nevertheless, I I understand and respect uh, why he thought that way. So uh, bringing it home today, uh, I just wanted to uh, say thank you to Mr. Friedkin. I wanted to talk about what an interesting and complicated cat he was. And I did, and I'm not finding the right way to say this. But I, I did I do feel like William Friedkin is um, a bit of a church bell at midnight for us that we need to know now that a whole generation of 70s movie makers who really inspired the nineties movie makers really, you know, the 70s are often looked at as at as the last great era of American cinema, although I know the 90s uh, has a bit of that reputation, but the 70s, I think, year for year, pound for pound, movie for movie, uh, we tend, even in comparison with many of the great movies that came out in the 90s, and I love a lot of the movies, American cinema that came out in the 90s, um, the 70s, you know, produced, you know, we're talking about the era that produced Jaws, Nashville, Last Picture Show, French Connection, Exorcist, I think I said this, Taxi Driver, uh, mean Streets, um, you know, The Long Goodbye, Mash, uh, Harold and Maude, um, Shampoo, holy moly, Chinatown. Y- you know, you-, you just go on and on and on in the 70s. Boy, um, we're now, those filmmakers are going to start leaving us. And uh, we really have to think about what they did and the time in which they did it and what that cinema was in its context how exciting it was and god willing harness that spirit uh and and as william friedkin and others leave their mortal coil and their spirit returns to the great great creator uh god willing we um, take some lessons from their spirit and their spirit infuses us and we make uh, exciting, truly exciting work, uh, and a new renaissance, a new era happens. So, uh, Mr. Friedkin in your honor, I hope uh, this is what happens. And thank you for the great cinema. Okay, moving on. Uh, we are now going to move to uh, Secret Movie Club Radio Hour, Episode Four. This is a uh, an actual fictional radio hour, an omnibus horror episode with a little five to ten minute. Uh, story segments. I hope you enjoy it. We did this October 31st of 2020, and uh, we will see you next week for our next Secret Movie Club podcast. Uh, That'll be Secret Movie Club podcast number four, but here we go. Hi, this is Craig, founder and programmer of Secret Movie Club. And today we were going to do Secret Movie Club Radio Hour Episode 4. But a few days ago in late October, we received at our headquarters here in downtown Los Angeles an unmarked envelope. And that envelope was a flash drive. And on that flash drive was a single file labeled capital MD underscore capital H underscore 30 dot FLAC. Not really sure what that means. So I just called the team and I told them, look, I know we did all this work on Secret Movie Club Radio Hour Episode 4. I apologize We're just going to, you know, put it in the archives maybe for another day. I'm just going to play this on Halloween. I really have no idea what's on it, um, which is really irresponsible for me to publicize it and throw it out on the airwaves. But sometimes you just got to roll loco, roll crazy, as uh, Secret Movie Club team member Edwin Gomez would say. So this is our Halloween trick or treat. We have no idea for you, the audience. I'm going to put it on. We're going to upload it. We're going to click on it. We're going to listen to it. I hope not at our own peril. So enjoy or absolutely abhor all caps, MD underscore, all caps, HH underscore 30 F L A C. And, uh, if you have any comments about it, you can always write us. We may or may not read them. We'll probably read them. Enjoy. <laughs>
2: It is I, Mr. Devil, welcoming you to my 30th annual House of Horrors Four tales of terror so frightening they will surely make you want to die So gather round, younglings, gather round Ah, yes. Some people say I have a horror host job to support my gambling problem. But I like to say I have a gambling job to support my horror host problem. My therapist hates that one. Anyways, here's our first story, The Wheel.
1: I got
3: it all cleaned up.
1: Sam motioned around the apartment. They had just had a housewarming party. It went very late. Uh Uh-huh.
3: What are you doing?
1: Oh, I forgot the bags and... Eddie pointed to their dog. We had one. Just get
2: it tomorrow. If I wait till morning, I might forget it. So? Well, I know that whenever I step in dog crap, I curse the soul of whoever didn't pick it up. (laughs) Plus, if I don't, I'll be thinking about it all night and won't be able to sleep anyway.
3: All right. See you in a few.
1: Eddie lived with Sam and the dog in a one-bedroom apartment in one of the nicer and more gentrified parts of the city. Eddie had never felt unsafe walking around, even this late at night. He'd had some strange encounters over the years. The time Eddie always thought of was when a considerably drunk woman had bent over to pet Rocky and, upon the dog's positive reaction, looked up at Eddie and asked if the dog smelled her vagina. But nothing had happened that ever truly shook him. At least nothing that wasn't his brain overthinking. Yeah, and you like to do that. Out here like an idiot. Eddie shook his head and his eyes drifted across the street. Fairly wide, though crowded with cars parked on both sides. The sidewalks were as nice as they could be, and there was a decent amount of green. The buildings were fairly old, and each had a short walk-up connected to the sidewalk by a few concrete steps. Eddie stopped and slipped a dog bag over his hand. With his other, he used the flashlight on his phone to search for his quarry. Once found, he snatched it, pulled the bag back over his hand, and quickly tied the top into a small, neat knot. Eddie started to head back. He was on the sidewalk across the street from his own apartment, and the block was empty, as it normally was, this late. He started to think about the times he had gotten spooked being out here. He and Sam would watch a horror movie, and then he'd be out with Rocky, and suddenly he'd be certain that something slimy was waiting for him around the corner, or the echo of his own footsteps would come back to him. He'd turn, but there'd be no one. Or, worst of all, a car would drive by and slow down. Way down. Its window open, bottomless black inside, moving past Eddie at a mocking pace. The perceived emptiness of its cabin filled with all the real-life boogeymen Eddie could conjure. Manson, Gacy, Bundy, the Zodiac who had just come out of retirement and moved from the bay and Eddie was to be his first comeback victim. Or maybe it was some sort of gang ritual, or a government op, or possibly... Shut up. One more building, cross the street, throw the bag in the trash, then I'm home. He started to focus on the cracks in the sidewalk. He'd step over them, lengthening and shortening the size of his step to avoid them. Eddie smiled to himself. Here he was, out at this hour, picking up dog poop just so someone else wouldn't step in it themselves. What goes around comes around, he thought, visualizing a giant wooden wheel. And he had just taken something off it. He'd be fine. He was protected and almost home. He turned across the street and... Excuse me. Eddie stopped and looked. There was a man sitting on the steps that led up to the building opposite Eddie's. He was about ten feet away, wearing a dark, tattered suit with a wide-brimmed hat that was tipped down over his face, hiding his features. Do you know what
4: time it is?
1: It's, uh, 3.30?
4: No. Do you know what time
1: it is? Eddie paused. He looked over the man once more. He was thin, and while it was hard to tell exactly how tall he was because he was sitting, he seemed quite large. And he was barefoot. Eddie couldn't believe he didn't notice that until now. His feet were so pale they looked like they glowed in the dark. Uh, I'm sorry, man. I'm tired. I'm about to head to bed. I don't really... Do you like to play games? What? Games. He smiled, his grin two rows of slanted tombstone teeth. Do you like to play Eddie's mouth felt dry. His breathing grew labored. One of his hands, the one still wrapped around his phone, was becoming unbearably sweaty. This didn't feel like irrational panic. This felt like the time Eddie thought he might have a heart condition. This felt like danger. Like video games or sports? Chance. Um. Eddie wanted to run and scream, but he was frozen. What about a riddle then? The man finally tilted his head up enough to reveal his eyes. Dark spirals caught inside dead glass marbles. Eddie glanced behind the man. A window was open, the curtain inside blowing in and out to the rhythm of Eddie's own breathing. He didn't know whose apartment it was, but he could smell something. Copper and something else.
4: Say there's a man who wants to die, but he can't go through with it himself. So, every day he prays for an accident to happen. And yet, it never, ever does. Not his whole
1: life. His smile widened. Is he lucky or unlucky? Eddie couldn't comprehend the question. He was too busy noticing little details. The dirt under the man's broken nails, his crooked nose, the blood on his coat. Eddie felt himself drifting away from where he stood. Big, deep fear welled up in his chest. Images floated past. The man with his hand gripped around a blade and plunged into the stomach of a vagrant. The man creeping into the open window of a large, extravagant house. The man spying on a woman as she undresses. The man suffocating a child, burying cats and mowing over them, eating flesh, pillaging, defiling, raping, killing, ripping, tearing. Eddie blinked. The man was still sitting down about ten feet away smiling.
2: Hey, man, I'm sorry. I'm tired and drunk and I really have to go.
1: He stepped back, daring to twist his head and look away. You forgot something. Eddie halted, and then, carefully, he turned his head back and saw the man gesturing to something near his own feet. The bag of dog crap. Eddie thought for a moment about walking over. It's... Fine. Eddie continued home. The man's smile somehow grew wider. Eddie didn't sleep that night. He stared up at the ceiling, light reflections from a malfunctioning streetlight arcing up over the top of his curtains, bounced across the old plaster, making an alien pattern. Eddie would never tell anyone about the man, though he was certain upon meeting some people for the first time that they already knew. Eddie turned onto his side, Sam and Rocky were cuddled up, warm and peaceful. They hadn't met the man. Not yet, at least. Eddie pictured the wooden wheel again, but this time, color filled it out in alternating shades of black and red. It spun a white ball, insanely bouncing in and out of little slots created by the small wooden bits between them. But the bits weren't wooden. They were made of the man's teeth and the ball, now the same ghastly yellow color, bounced across the wheel making a sound like bones rubbing against each other. Eddie didn't know where it would land. He had no control. Never had it to begin with. He began to cry.
2: I think I met that man once, out on international waters. It's probably all I should share about that. Well, here's something about the water I can share. It's our next story. The Sleeping Mariner.
4: At first, I thought they were messing with me. But I looked deep down into the water, and something was definitely moving. Something big. The first underwater rumbling woke me. I was in the middle of a nightmare about my grandparents' backyard in Thibodeau woke up to another nightmare, hit my damn head on the upper berth, ready to cuss them all out. They had a habit of all gathering at the shift change to piss off the side. It was breakfast or dinner, depending on your shift. There were just nine of us. It was my damn right to take a nap instead of eat. Then the whole big rig rumbled. Great. Earthquake. Stumbled out into the hall. The damn smell of rust and decay and a decade of neglect had seeped into this relic of better times for drilling. Like arthritis. Like an old dog so crippled in the cold you just want to grab a shotgun and put it out of its misery. I guess that's what we were doing. Putting this rig out of its misery. Shutting her down. But no one was around. I stormed into the dining hall ready to tear them all a new one. I thought maybe the explosives guy, Rad or Rod or Ride or whatever that kid said his name was, had finally decided fire safety regulations... Really don't apply to the young. But no one was there. The remnants of the clown crew I got set up with was there. Plates, half nags, cigarettes on the floor still smoking, ash in a long line like a dynamite fuse. Vape pens tossed in the corner. God, that was weird. Didn't like that. And that's when the whole thing buckled. Then I hit the floor and slid to the edge of the room. Into the girly posters unicorn, in North Dakota put out of women I'd never meet, holding industrial equipment. I gathered myself, grabbed rail like I was grabbing my ass in a firefight, went low outside and looked over the edge into the deep swirling void, an abyss they call the Pacific. Peaceful my ass. The ocean is a gaping maw of blunt death and murder and fear. Nature at its best. Without the hussy makeup of a man-made myth trying to add eyeshadow to permanent darkness. I hated the ocean. That's why I worked on it. To remind me what a horror show it all was, and to get away from people. I hated. At least sharks have the good sense to be sharks. People prance around pretending they're angels, then sleep with each other's spouses. Rip off whoever they can. Whatever. Some French fops said we're insects devouring other insects in a trough of mud. Exactly. I'm sick even talking about it. Life isn't worth the air it's written on. And I thought these jokesters, these 20-year-olds, and the engineers who were a little better were messing with me, but I looked over the edge and I saw it. Something huge. With slithering huge moving arms the size of New York City blocks wrapped around the columns of the rig. Squeeze. Tear it. Yank it. And the poor thing cried out. Crumpled more. Listed five more degrees and fell ten more feet. And I almost flew off. But I held that rail like I'd wrestled all my disappointments to the mat. That was my gift. Or curse. Reflexes faster than my conscious thought. My body was always determined to keep me alive. Damn, at this rate I had five minutes. I looked one more time and saw it. And my whole body froze in sudden, horrified, overwhelming shock. Because it saw me. Its huge eye, bigger than some park surfaced up out of that darkness and saw me, and it pulled again. I ran to the comm terminal. I just accepted things and acted on them. My mom wasted hours in prayer, and the cancer still took her at 50. I'd rather talk to the mainland than get on my knees to chat with an imaginary friend. I grabbed the comm and spat out. Hey, pac This is Operator Gus Broussard, badge number 5420. I'm on the poppy. It's 0213. The rig is collapsing. We've got five minutes. Two minutes. Make it two minutes before total submersion. We need airvac support. ASAP, over. Hey! Pack Put down the F and phone. Stop Instagramming or tweeting or Hey! Pack Operator Jacob Meisner, batch number 67. Please
0: make your way to your enclosed lifecraft to sound the alarm. The uh the alarm has been.
4: Oh, hell They got the call. I saw the water rushing into the comm room, sea level. I ran out again, but up this time. The whole rig was so far over it was like a 14-year-old puking at its first party. I wasn't going to take the slide. I'd claw my way up the ladder, but it was hard. The floor was all wet. I kept sliding back, grabbing rail. I knew I shouldn't look back, but I looked back. Some sensitive nerve-filled tentacle end of something so massive the mind couldn't comprehend it slapped the steel balls I screamed, or maybe a scream didn't come out, but I ran back out onto the platform. I could see the lights of Santa Barbara five miles back. Best dirty sex of my life. In a Ramana by Wyndham of all places, Cinda. Ah hell, I didn't have time. Water was coming up over everything. I couldn't even grab a flotation device. There was an enclosed life craft 20 meters out. Then something came out of the water, encircled it, and crushed it viciously like a second-rate soda can. I couldn't even sound the alarm. What to do? What to do? Nothing was going to be topside in 30 seconds. The crane. Hell, I'd operated a crane. I could climb up to the cab. There had to be something up there, or maybe I could fire it up and plunge the hook right into this thing's leviathan eye. And send it back to the depths from whence it came. So I ran. I wasn't going to go out without a fight. So I climbed and I clawed and put this thing out of my mind. I scrambled up the crane ladder like a damn squirrel in winter. Got to the cab door. Pull. Save me, please!
2: Save me! It's stung me! Wh- why didn't I you pull the alarm?
4: Where's the... It... Oh,
5: you need to drop the oh, hook into its eye! Me! Into it its me. eye! Something is happening to me right now!
4: Her skin was oh, all oily and gray-green. Oh, Bile was coming out please. of her mouth. She lurched out at me to grab me, and I just fell back and slid back down that ladder like Jesus... Poor Fanny. I didn't know I had sympathy and mercy left in my shriveled old heart. But I did. Fanny was a new girl who had a bad relationship and just needed time. And look what God gave her. I was in deep water now. In with that thing. Its arm could grab me and pull me under at any moment. Below the surface. I shuddered and froze for a moment. Almost gave up. Just waited. But something about Fanny. Something about Fanny. Something gleamed out of the corner of my eye. The moon or something caught it. One of the pickheads with a hickory handle was still in its damn place on the wall. In case of a fire, I scrambled, sloshed, broke the glass, grabbed it in my bloody hands, gripped it. It felt good. I could wield one of these things. Hell, I would chopped firewood. My blood turned colder than the water. I turned and gripped the axe until my knuckles practically popped through my skin. Its arms were all over the deck, but so was something else. A million teeth arrayed in horrifying circles going all the way down a gullet, like a tunnel into hell. It grabbed me. I tore that axe right into the meat of its arm. It shrieked released. I slid down towards that mouth. I tried to stop my slide, but who was I kidding? I wasn't gonna stop that slide. I hit something, it hurt, but it stopped me just four feet from this thing's mouth, and now it shrieked in some kind of foul vengeance. And I knew I had a one-way ticket into the bowels of that thing. And suddenly, something in me I don't know what, Something in me gave me the strength to fight. I raised the axe. I readied myself. Hell, I decided I'd jump in and start hacking away. And then something even more startling escaped my lips. I never thought I'd hear my lips form ever again. And I raised the axe. And I started.
2: Oh, the sea. A cruel mistress. Speaking of the sea, I'm on the sea fog diet. I see fog, and I'm reminded of the ephemeral nature of life, and I tend to overeat. Speaking of sea fog, here's our next story. Sea Fog.
6: Silence. The infinite nothing that permeates when the only thing in any direction is open water and the only light is the moon. Charlotte sits on the deck of a blue fishing boat called Guthrie. The pristine condition of the vessel suggested is quite new. An open notebook and magazine rests on her knees, commanding all of her attention as she focuses a small flashlight onto the page. She writes, What is the
5: call that comes from days isolated on the water? To live in it, to die in
6: it. She looks up after a moment to take in the quiet before turning to two mounted fishing rods resting to her right on the side of the boat. The thin fishing lines occasionally catch the moonlight, pulled taut but undisturbed, lures Bob around a distance out. Returning to her reading, Charlotte picks up a pen and begins to make notes. The magazine article reads, Charlotte Kinder and the War for Sustainable Fishing, with a headshot of Charlotte adorning the page. As she writes, the pale light on the water gradually unveils a dense rolling sea fog, slowly pushing towards the boat. Charlotte stretches her arm out in front of her face and for the first time takes notice of the fog, which continues to roll in. She writes in her notebook once more.
5: There's a heavy fog tonight.
6: I can barely see my outstretched hand in it. She shivers and finally moves her notebook and magazine onto the deck of the boat before drawing her knees into her chest for warmth. A sudden plop as the fishing lure disappears underwater, hidden by the fog. The fishing rod begins to bend at the tip, jostling Charlotte as she quickly turns towards it. She stands, pointing her flashlight into the fog, but there is nothing visible. The rod creaks on occasion as the line is pulled. She takes a step towards the rod, but turns back toward the interior of the boat, quickly reaching inside to snag a life jacket. As she does, the rod begins to arch further and further, and the Guthrie is slowly pulled with it. Charlotte latches the top strap of the life jacket and grabs the fishing rod, shifting her weight, digging her heels into the boat, and attempting to gain control of whatever she's hooked she fights with the unknown entity, but struggles to continue reeling in, seemingly stuck. She bends her knees and falls back onto the deck, sliding her feet into the railing and pulls with every ounce of strength that she can muster. The line snaps. Charlotte curses under her breath. Lying on her back, she looks up to the sky, but the fog is so dense that not even the stars are visible. Reaching for her flashlight, she points it toward the area of her failed capture. Squinting her eyes at what appears to be a reflective surface, she sits up to focus, holding her breath as she does, attempting to see anything in the fog. For a moment, there is nothing. Then, the sound of something moving through the water. The bow of a larger ship cuts through the fog. Before she can react, it collides with Guthrie forcibly sliding Charlotte overboard. Charlotte gasps for a breath of air as she comes up from the water, quickly whipping around to get a clear sense of her location. She sees the flashing sidelights of the Guthrie and begins to swim in their direction, trying to stay calm as everything dips into darkness in between the flashes. An object interrupts the swim. A backpack... Pushing it out of the way, she presses on but notices a steel box floating in the ship's path. She swims towards it. A logo for Maritime Refrigeration adorns the side of the steel box, revealed to be a fish freezer by the blinking lights of the Guthrie that occasionally illuminate it. The freezer appears to be caught in a fishing net that's extending out from the ship. Charlotte spots another one ahead, the door swung open. Moving to investigate, she brings her face near the interior of the door. Scratch marks are everywhere inside. Fingernail scratch marks. She pushes away, quickly in a panic, continuing towards her boat. As she finally approaches, exhausted, she grabs the side of her boat and shimmies around to a position that lets her pull herself up. She quickly recovers her flashlight and moves to investigate the damage leaning over the side. A nasty chunk has been removed from the stern, but the boat doesn't appear to be taking on any water. Focusing the flashlight into the fog, she searches for the other vessel before catching the faint reflection of its hull. She looks for a second before moving inside. Charlotte closes her eyes as she ignites the Guthrie's silent electric engines, breathing a sigh of relief as everything comes to life. She activates and focuses a small spotlight towards what she can see of the other boat before moving the throttle slowly forward. The ship comes into focus, but the deck is still obscured by the fog. There are no visible lights or signs of life from the other boat. Moving the spotlight over the hull, she spots the name Katusa before catching the glimmer of a ladder resting on the side. She picks up her radio.
5: Katusa, this is Guthrie. Do you copy?
6: She waits, squinting through the windows into the fog. She presses her hand down on the horn, honking it several times. Nothing.
5: Katusa, this is Guthrie. Do you copy?
6: Again, no response. Charlotte thinks for a second.
5: Pan-pan, pan-pan, pan-pan. Coast Guard Radio, Coast Guard Radio, Coast Guard Radio, this is fishing boat Guthrie. I've been involved in a collision with what appears to be a purse vessel called Katusa, who is not responding to my calls or horn. Please advise. A voice responds. Guthrie, this is Coast Guard Radio. Where is your location? Before she can answer,
6: static emerges from the Katusa's radio line. Charlotte feels her stomach
5: sink. Katusa, this is Guthrie? Nothing. Guthrie. Charlotte takes this in and
6: snaps into action. Coast
5: Guard Radio, I will broadcast GPS location and emergency lights, but I am moving to board Katusa to investigate possible distress.
6: Charlotte does not wait for a response. She punches a few buttons on her controls and navigates Guthrie to become parallel with Katusa, matching its slow drift. She grabs a waterproof bag and removes a first-aid kit, rations, and a flare gun before taking a rope from the adjoining wall and moving outside. The ladder slowly comes into clearer view as Guthrie glides next to Catoosa. Charlotte carefully waits and times a throw, wrapping the rope around the bottom rings of the ladder and ties her end to a cleat. Grabbing the ladder, she pauses to get her bearings. She places a hand over each of her pockets, confirming her gear is in place, and with one final breath, she begins to ascend. Flashlight in hand, Charlotte steps onto the Catoosa. The steel frame of the boat creaks as it moves slowly through the ocean, large unseen equipment shifting in the dark. In the water below, the Guthrie's blinking emergency lights offer occasional moments of illumination ahead through the fog. Moving ahead slowly, Charlotte shines her flashlight from the floor to directly ahead of her in a deliberate pattern. She attempts to keep her breathing slow, despite the unease in her stomach. Scattered equipment and netting litter the deck. All at once, the putrid odor of rotting fish hits Charlotte. She swallows hard, fighting the urge to vomit, and pauses for a moment against a wall. Shining her light forward, she sees a staircase and takes it upwards. Each step through the fog gradually reveals an open door at the top. Charlotte stands in the entrance. She attempts to mask the panic in her voice as she speaks. Hello? No answer. Cautiously, she moves inside. The open door has allowed the fog to enter the bridge. Carefully moving to the controls, Charlotte begins pressing buttons, looking for any method to restore power to the vessel, but she has no such luck. Petusa is dead in the water at present. The bridge door slams shut behind her. Charlotte spins around, pointing her light at the entrance, but sees nothing. She holds her breath again, listening for any sign of movement. The creak of the ship is the only sound to be heard. Taking a brief pause to gather herself, she pushes on with careful steps, looking and listening for anything she can make out in the fog. At the door, she attempts to push it open with her back, staring into the bridge as she does. Taking another breath, she turns and kicks it open and quickly slams it shut behind her. Charlotte moves around the upper deck, gradually curving around the windows of the bridge until she finds another set of stairs leading up toward an observation deck. The deck is small and empty. She moves to look over the side and she finds the sea fog still obstructing her view. Removing the flare gun from her jacket, Charlotte points it into the air and fires. The red light of the flare ignites the sky. She looks for any answers in the deck below, but the fog still proves to be an obstacle. A massive crane appears slightly visible toward the bow. The crane is dramatically bent backwards, seeming to wrap around into the water, still holding a fishing net. As she looks, she spots a light moving slightly on the deck below her. She quickly moves back down the stairs towards it. Retracing her steps, Charlotte rounds a corner to the opposite side of the ship and spots the light once more. It moves gently from side to side in time with the boat swaying. She approaches it and drops to her knees. Another flashlight. She picks it up to examine it. It's producing a more powerful beam than the one she's carrying, so she slides her own into her pocket. Making one more sweep of the area around her reveals more scattered equipment and the occasional dead fish. She takes a step towards the bow and the damaged crane. A cough, or something that sounds like it, echoes from Charlotte's left side. She turns to an archway that leads downward into the cabin of the ship. Hesitating momentarily, she moves down the stairs. It is pitch black in the cabin as she reaches the end of the stairs. The new flashlight penetrates the darkness and reveals a hallway with doors on either side. Approaching the first door on her right, she grabs the handle to open it, but stops as she hears the cough again, echoing further down the hall. Hello? She yells again. Hello? The slight, pained moan of someone responds. Turning her light towards the doors further down the hallway, she starts to move. She arrives at the stateroom door and pushes it open without hesitation. Her light finds a sickly-looking older man slouched on a bench. He puts his hands over his eyes to block Charlotte's light. My name is Charlotte Kinder. Can you speak? The man struggles to push himself upright. His left eye is swollen and dried spots of blood are spread across his body. His left arm appears limp. Sure. Charlotte places the flashlight on a countertop, facing it upwards to eliminate the room. She removes her backpack. The Coast Guard are on their way. Can you tell me your name? She places the first aid kit on the table in front of his bench.
2: Lewis?
5: That's a lovely name. Lewis, can you talk to me and tell me what happened?
1: Absolute chaos. Oh, We've been stranded for I don't know how long.
5: Did help not respond?
1: We didn't call for help.
6: Charlotte pauses for a moment at this response. She feels goosebumps on her arms. He stares at her.
1: What did you say your name was? Charlotte. Kinder.
6: Charlotte meets his stare. Yeah?
1: Kinder Industries.
6: She watches him carefully, her movements tense. The very same? Louis pauses on this revelation for a moment.
1: The Force for change. I didn't ask for change.
6: Charlotte doesn't respond.
1: I like the old way. So did my crew. Ah, look at us. Operating like deplorables.
5: Change is predestined, Lewis. If you accept that, you can evolve with it. Either way, the world spins on without us. It doesn't matter what we do. He
6: ignores her.
1: You spend a lot of time alone on the water, Kinder.
6: Lewis moves his attention to the window. Sure.
1: Once I was all alone, I just kept hearing this call. I wasn't suicidal. I don't regret what we did. It was just an invite from the water. To live there, or die there, if I wanted. So welcoming.
5: I've gotten that invite, too.
6: Louis turns back to her.
1: I think I'd like to be left alone, Charlotte Kinder.
6: Charlotte studies his face. There's a calm around him. He adjusts his position to look back out the window again. Charlotte looks, too. There's no visibility, only the fog, but Lewis is transfixed by it. She quietly begins to pack up her things and moves back toward the hallway, but she pauses at the door. She reaches into her bag and removes some rations and places them on the table. After a moment of hesitation, she also removes the flare gun and reloads it. She looks at Lewis once more, but his focus is unbroken. Walking down the hallway, Charlotte initially leaves the remaining doors untouched, but as she arrives at the first door she stopped at before, discovering Lewis, she pauses. She cracks it open slightly, shining her light in. Obscured from view is a bed with two lifeless feet hanging over the side. She closes it again and moves to the stairs leading to the deck. Charlotte stands facing away from the Catoosa on the front of the Guthrie, looking out into the fog over the open water. She closes her eyes. A moment passes and she steps back from the railing. Searching the decks, she recovers her notebook and magazine. She sits down and focuses her flashlight onto them, pen at the ready. She turns and pauses. Focusing on the Guthrie spotlight, still aimed in the general direction of the Katusa nameplate on the hull of the large ship, her attention returns to her notebook. Behind her, a row of windows on the Katusa are revealed through the fog, as the orange glow of fire lights up the interior behind the windows.
2: Ah, oh, the sea, a cool and we already do this one already? Enough of this junk time for the really scary stuff. It's our last story. Night at the Club.
5: On a dark and temperate night in the City of Angels, at an independent movie theater that will hopefully exist for a while, six men gather. And why are they there?
2: Why are we here?
5: Four of them stand around the front area of the movie theater. Like, where you get your popcorn. The one in charge, Craig, replies first.
0: Well, there are two reasons. One, we need to make sure the place is safe.
5: Another, Connor, who looks sleepy.
0: Safe for what? From what? Safe for the all-night sleepover movie marathon we want to play here, and from the murderer who's been going around killing people during all-night sleepover movie marathons in Los Angeles.
5: A third, Daniel, who we heard before.
0: Listen, I'm not about
2: to become fast food for some film freak.
5: The fourth, Edwin, calmly.
4: Wait, Daniel, I'm sure Craig has a reasonable explanation. Besides, we should wait for our other two friends, Casey and Steven, who are in the back grabbing drinks, so we can inform them of the situation as well. Thanks, Edwin.
0: It's going to be okay. No one knows we're here. The second reason we're doing this, by the way, is because of this anonymous letter telling me that if me and five of my closest employees stayed the night at the club, we'd all get $10 million. Mm, seems fishy. $10 million each?
4: If no one knows we're here, how could this properly test out the safety of the club? Damn, the power.
0: Listen, gang, let's cut through the theater and check on the others.
3: <gasps> what a horrifying sight. Our two friends' dead bodies, mangled and twisted into a macabre tableau, too terrible to describe. Let's get out of here.
0: Maybe we should stick around and figure out who done it. We already did that.
3: Maybe we're in a story right now. We did that too.
4: Guys, I think we should listen to Connor. His knowledge of horror films, which I respect, leads me to believe he's the one with the right ideas.
3: Thanks, buddy. And just know, if this was a giant monster attacking us, you'd be the only one I'd turn to. Now, let's just get out of here. The longer we wait around, talking, chit-chatting, shooting the breeze, the more opportunities this killer is going to have to strangle or tackle or shoot or stab us. See? Like right then. That would have been a great place for me to get shot. Right after I say, or shoot, boom, a gunshot rings out. Or right after I said the thing about getting stabbed, if I then got stabbed, man, what a doozy that would have been, huh? I'm sure glad that it didn't happen, and that it won't happen. <sighs> Anyways.
5: A knife, stabbed in from the back, pops off the front of Connor's neck.
3: We should get going.
2: This slice
5: goes through his cheek. I think I'm still good. And this one takes off his nose.
2: That was lovely, did it.
5: Behind Connor stands a hulking figure holding the bloody knife. His face is covered by a simple ski mask, and his nondescript clothes give no clue to his identity. Ah! Craig, Daniel, and Edwin run down the stairs past the service elevator and to the front door. But alas...
4: I
0: won't open. He locked it from the outside? No, it's broken. Did you know? Yes, it's my fatal flaw, you see. I take on too much, and I'm bad at delegating. But if we just wiggle this around, it should...
5: And then, suddenly swinging down from the empty elevator shack next to him... No! A knife is plunged into Craig's head. Come on, we'll
2: try the window in the back. Let's get this thing open.
5: But then, from outside the window, a knife plunges into Daniel's stomach...
2: How'd he get out there?
4: But why you? You didn't do anything.
2: Don't you see? It's not about me. I can't be the final boy. It's you, Edwin. It was always... you.
5: So, Edwin is stuck. A jammed door in the front and a jammed window in the back. Now he wanders through the theater room in between, unsure of what to do.
4: I'm unsure of what to do. He
5: looks up. The masked figure stands before him.
4: Oh, God!
2: Why have movies forsaken me? They have not.
5: Suddenly, an apparition appears before Edwin, angelic and radiating positive energy. They strike the murderer down and his body crumbles to the floor.
2: I am the spirit of cinema, and no true believer will be harmed in this. A theater, the temple of film, under my watch.
4: But what about all those times that bad things did happen in theaters?
2: I wasn't paying attention. Anyways, I brought back all of your friends, I think. Goodbye!
5: Just like that, the spirit of cinema disappears. And several others reappear. Hey, Hey.
3: I got my voice back. Hey, it's me, Casey. But wait, who could have done this?
5: Craig nods, leans down, and pulls the mask from the dead man's face. But then the murderer's clothes deflate his body made only of sand.
3: It's sand. No, look.
5: Craig reaches down again, pulling a business card from the clothes.
0: Ah, yes, of course. It was Cinema's true enemy. Civil War reenactments.
5: And thus, Secret Movie Club, minus Steven, who the spirit of cinema forgot to bring back, traveled the country, gaining power, spreading the word of anti-Civil War reenactment beliefs, passing laws, banning Civil War reenactments, enforcing those laws with brutal strength, forcing those who wish to even discuss Civil War reenactments to whisper and hide and start underground secret societies. Freedom fighters dedicated to a future in which reenacting the Civil War is no longer denied by Big Brother. Well, I think that will be enough for tonight. I'm the 82nd clone of Hillary Clinton wishing you a happy Halloween.
2: Yes, a happy Halloween to all you murderous men, witchy women, and nightmarish non-binaries. I have been Mr. Devil, and this has been my 30th anniversary Hall of Haunts,
4: starring Jackson Canning as The Man. Gus
3: and Edwin, Connor Lloyd Cruz as... The Spirit of Cinema.
6: Gabrielle Galloway as the narrator for Seafog.
3: Edwin Gomez
1: as Coast Guard Radio.
0: Craig Hamill as pac Operator.
5: Beverly Jean as the narrator for Night at the Club. Emily Kirk as Sam and Fanny. Elise Metcalf as Charlotte.
1: Daniel Ott as Eddie. Bill Watterson as the narrator for The Wheel and Lewis. This episode of Secret Movie Club Radio Hour
0: was written, directed, edited, and produced by Connor. Lloyd Cruz. The Sleeping Mariner was written and directed by Craig Hamill. Seafog was written and directed by Daniel Ott. Sound recording and re recording mixing by Jamie Hart. Original music by Andrew Kaiser. With additional music for The Wheel and Night at the Club by Connor Lloyd Cruz and for Seafog by Brian Robert. I'm Craig Hamill, the founder and programmer of Secret Movie Club. Thanks so much for spending some of your precious Halloween spooky time on our horror anthology. And join us this holiday season for our season finale Secret Movie Club Radio Hour Episode 5, a two part Western film with double crosses, desperate characters, a race to collect a bounty, and a secret town of well, you'll just have to listen to find out. You can find out about everything we do, including movie screenings, blogs, podcasts, movie posters, t-shirts, and everything cinema at secretmovieclub.com. Until then, watch great movies, tell great stories, and have a happy Halloween.
3: Craig, how's it going on your side? Is that that boy still there? Oh,
0: I mean, let's just record it, and then you can cut it, and I can re-record it if we need to. I don't know what these people are doing. I mean, they're literally... It's Fast and Furious 11 out here, so...